Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. Are you glad to be back? So excited to be back. I just... Uh, want to say thank you to those that have been praying for my wife and I, our family. Four of us got hit with this nasty virus, and we are on the mend, praise the Lord, but we couldn't have done it without the prayers and, and drive-by goodie bags and uh, all sorts of good stuff. So we thank you so much for loving us, and we appreciate you so very much. Um, quickly, immediately after church today, if you signed up to uh, volunteer at our prayer and worship night, we're going to have a brief meeting. We just kind of want to talk about when to get here, how we're going to set up, and some things for that night. So if you could, uh, those are going to be volunteering. Stick around for a few minutes afterwards, and uh, we'll have that meeting, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Um, but uh, it's going to be an awesome night. I just just a time of the body of Christ to get together and uh, join with believers from around the city. Uh, we don't know how many to expect. We just expect God to be here, and that's enough. So we want we want to we want to be good hosts, and we want to expect the Lord today. Uh, it was kind of funny. We were uh, in our Sunday morning uh, prayer time when we gather with our volunteers before church to, to pray. Uh, Scott was uh, praying, you know, that we've had two weeks off, and uh, to kind of the joke that came to my head was we have got two weeks off, so now we got two weeks worth of message to get through today. So I uh, hope you're ready to learn. We're going to dive in the deep end uh, and continue in this story of the great romance. This the, what we're going through now through the Old Testament is we're looking at what God has been doing and accomplishing and kind of peeling back the gloss of the Scripture. What we're seeing is the real story of how God has been working through all of humanity for all time to get us to the place where Jesus could come, He could give His life on the cross, and then raise up a people for Himself that we could spend for eternity in this in this relationship with God forever and ever and ever. This this is the greatest love story that anyone has ever written, and it's the story we're living out each and every day of our lives. And often, it, whenever we gloss over what's happening, we lose the significance of the hour that we live in. We lose the significance of the purpose that we have. Why are we here in this room today? Why? Why, why not just believe in Jesus and go about your life? Right? What, what, what's motivating? What, what is driving us to continue to gather, to worship, to glorify the Lord? The great romance is the story that tells us. It draws our hearts in. And something I want to highlight to you today is so significant to this story and essential to our understanding all the rest of Scripture. I was just reading in this morning in, in Colossians chapter 1, and, and we're not even in that text today, but over and again, things mentioned in Colossians, Paul's writing to the church, go back to this very time period we're talking about today. When we were together last, we, the Israelites were whining for water in the book of Numbers. They had gotten thirsty again, parched in the wilderness. You know, that happens from time to time. You get thirsty, a little thirsty. So they're whining for water, and, and God tells Moses, okay, we're going to provide water. Go speak to the rock. Remember, speak to the rock, and then the water will flow. But Moses had a hissy fit, and he struck the rock instead. 
And after he struck the rock, God was faithful. He provided the water, but he disobeyed the Lord. And so God said, okay, that was, that was your shot. You blew it. Now you and Aaron are not getting into the promised land. And after this moment, after they give water from the rock, God comes to Moses and tells Moses, it's time for Aaron to die. Imagine that. God comes to you and says, okay, it's time for your brother to die. So you know this. You, you know Aaron is about to pass away. So they go up to the top of the mountain uh, with a few people. Aaron takes his robe off. They anoint Eleazar, Aaron's son, as the new high priest of Israel. And Aaron dies there before the Lord on the mountain. And the people go into mourning for 30 days. And after this mourning period of time, as the people mourned Aaron's death, his passing, they, uh, they begin to move from this place at Kadesh Barnea toward the promised land as, again, they're nearing the end of their 40-year wandering. They're now heading toward the promised land, getting closer and closer to the fulfilling of God's promises. And on their way to the promised land, they encounter two more enemies, King Sihon of the Amorites and King Og of Bashan. Now Sihon, the king of the Amorites, wanted to stop the Israelites from moving through his land. He didn't want them passing through the land. So he went out and advanced them militarily, and God gave them a great victory, Israel, a great victory over King Sihon. They, they destroyed the enemy. In Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 31 through 35, it says, So the people of Israel occupied the territory of the Amorites. After Moses sent men to explore the Jazar area, they captured all the towns in the region and drove out the Amorites who lived there. But they turned and marched up to the road to Bashan. But King Og of Bashan and all of his people attacked them at Edrei. The Lord said to Moses, Don't be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you, along with all of his people and his land. Do the same to him as you did to King Sihon of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. It, and Israel killed King Og and his sons and all his subjects. Not a single survivor remained, and then Israel occupied their land. Now, it's, when you're reading this story, it's easy to just kind of gloss over this and, and miss what's happening. You think, well, they just came across two kings. These kings didn't want them going through their land. They came out to fight. Israel won, and the battle's over. But if we look at what the Bible also records about this specific battle with Og of Bashan in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, we see a few more details to kind of draw us into what's really behind this moment in the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, as Moses is recounting this, this moment, he says, We completely destroyed the kingdom of Bashan. Just as we destroyed King Sihon of Heshbon, we destroyed all the people in every town. We conquered men, women, and children alike. We kept all the livestock for ourselves and took plunder from all the towns. So we took the land of the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River all the way from the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians, and the Amorites call it Sinir. Again, when the Bible gives you specific locations, it's to mark this as a as a moment in, in, to describe, look, it's not just that this happened, here's where it happened, and the significance of where it happened. Verse 10, he says, We had now conquered all the cities of the plateau and all of Gilead and Bashan, as far as the towns of Selica and Edrei, which were part of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Verse 11, 
King Og of Bashan was the last survivor of who? The giant Rephites. His bed was made of iron, and it was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide and can still be seen in the Ammonite city of Reba. Og of Bashan was not just your normal run-of-the-mill king in this land. He was not your everyday normal person. Og was somebody very specific. He was the last survivor of the giants that came from the wickedness of the fallen angelic realm. Why did they have to wander, do you remember, for 40 years when they were entering the promised land the first time? They left, they left in fear. They rejected God. Why? Because they were giants in the land. This was the land that was occupied by these massive people that came from the corruption the enemy sowed into the world when the enemy rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 6 and so on. So during the 40-year wandering... These giants that were in the way, most of them were taken down in battle by other nations. Think about it. They, they were too afraid to do it themselves, so God sends them through the wilderness. While they're wandering with God, God enables other nations to take out the other giants. But before they could enter into the promised land, they had to face the last giant. One giant was still standing. It was Og of Bashan. And what is fascinating is that in the land of Bashan is Mount Hermon. We just read about Mount Hermon. In, in ancient Jewish and uh, Mesopotamian literature, um, much coming from the Second Temple period, such as First Enoch, the Book of the Giants, and others, Mount Hermon is the exact location where the angels that fell from heaven to corrupt mankind in Genesis 6, that is where they landed. That's where they entered into a covenant and, and came together to decide to begin to corrupt mankind. That's where they left their place of the heavenlies and committed sin against the Lord. This land of Bashan is extremely significant because two major cities in this land, Ashtaroth and Adrei, where Og actually attacked Israel uh, in this story, both of those cities were considered gateways or portals to the underworld. So if you think about the mindset of what's going on here in this place of darkness where the angelic realm rebelled against God, they corrupted mankind, these giants were produced in the very place that was considered a doorway between the physical and the spiritual realm, God leads Israel back to this place for one final conflict. God has taken now Israel full circle. He transformed their place of failure in the wilderness where they rebelled because of a lack of faith. He transformed their place of failure in the wilderness, the place that made them turn away from the Lord because of the giants in the land. He turned this place of failure into a place of great victory. And it's this victory over Agabashan that sets tremors of terror into the rest of the nations occupying the promised land that God has chosen for himself. Just think about what's happening here. You know, it's only God who can turn your place of failure into the ground of your greatest victory. It is only God 
that can take the place of your greatest failure and turn it into the ground of your greatest victory. I want to show you, I just think this, these things are so fascinating and really draw you in. I want to show you a video clip of a place that has been located in the Bashan, in the very place that we're talking about today, a place called Gilgal Raphaim. Go ahead and show that clip. You know, I've been all up and down this beautiful country of Israel, but where you and I are today has to be the most head-scratching location I've ever been to. So the question is, what is this? Or maybe more importantly, why is this? Well, with these questions, there's only one person to turn to, my man, Danny the Digger. How you doing, buddy? Hello. Hi, Raj. It's always great to have you. Always a pleasure to be on the show. So, Danny, walk me through this. Where are we? What's going on? What do we look at? Well, first of all, we are on the top of the Golan Heights, an area that is an elevated plateau just east of the Sea of Galilee. The border with Syria is just around the corner there. It's right behind there. the hilltops. Wow. These antennas are intelligence units uh, monitoring into Syria of the Israeli Defense Forces. And the Golan Heights, after the Six-Day War, was surveyed by several archaeologists and so many interesting finds were made here. This one is one of the most intriguing ones. Rujum el Khiri, the big pile of rocks of the wild cat. Okay, I don't know exactly what to make of that. And Israel decided to label it in Hebrew as Gilgal Refaim. Now, Gilgal means a wheel, Galgal, but Gilgal in the Bible is a place where Joshua and the Israelites have settled after crossing the Jordan River and created a little uh, cultic center there toward the place of uh, the Tent of Meeting. Okay. And that name for this site hints that this is also of religious nature. And the second word is Rephaim. Now who is Rephaim? Rephaim is the biblical name for the giants. And this is the big mystery of this site. This site apparently relates or claims to relate to the biblical giant that roamed this land in Canaanite times. Now, if you remember when Moses is, is uh, challenged by the people, why should we go to this land? What's, what's over there? And he decides to send spies. Yeah. Okay, go to the promised land, report to us on what is there. And they return reporting, oh my God, it's a land dripping of milk and honey, honey right? right? But then they also admit it's a land of mighty big fortified walls and giants. These guys. And apparently they were referring to something like this, or to people that uh, created such megalithic structures. Some say it's calcolithic, some say no, maybe it's early bronze, but it's very, very old, it's prehistorical, and it especially is intriguing as it resembles a big circle of stones in England. Stonehenge. Stonehenge. This is the Stonehenge of the Promised Land, if you wish. Look at this. Wow. Let's go and take a closer look. I'll follow you. You know, Danny, walking up this path, you couldn't really see much, but now standing on top of it, this is a massive, huge complex. So, so tell me about these circles. What do they mean? Well, this is the outer circle that we're standing on. It is 520 feet in diameter, and they estimate that a total of 42,000 stones were piled up to make this whole complex. Okay, it's three circles around a central hill, also man-made that maybe seem to orient to um, uh, the layout of the stars. But 
no one really has a clear answer as to what it is. Now, the Bible provides an interesting indication of giants that roamed in this land in Canaanite times. And uh, I told you about the spies reporting about the giants living in this land. But in Deuteronomy, it even refers to the giants of the Bashan, which is the biblical name for this region, the Golan. So Danny, we're inside this incredible structure. Um, is this a, a big tomb? That's, a, that's exactly the mystery. We are inside the holy of holies of these uh, set of circles. This pile of rocks proves to contain this big hole inside, which by the way is maybe 7,000 years old. We're, we're counting on an engineering project from such a long time ago. <laughs> We hope he did a good job, otherwise we're not in good shape. It's all dry construction. There's no bonding material, and it's this giant slab of stone over our heads which is holding it all from burying us. This stone is gigantic. It is. And people, I don't, I don't know how you could even potentially lift that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, but let alone thousands. That's, that's the mystery. How could people in a prehistorical stage move and shape and place such, such giant stones? And what was the function of this? So one theory suggests it's a tomb. The others say, no, it's, it's a place to present offerings. It's just a big mystery. So these things still exist in our world today. And the megalithic structure like this has been there since the time Israel went to fight Og of Bashan. They would have seen this when they went to fight against this king. And if you notice at the center of the complex, when they went down into that pit, one of the historical uses for these ceremonial pits for the cults of the dead in ancient times was ritualistic necromancy. This was a way for diviners to contact the spiritual world and even summon spirits from the dead or contact entities from the other side. And so there's a strong connection with structures like this and other ancient structures around the world, um, but more specifically here in this area, uh, that connect what they were doing to contact the other side, to call down their gods, uh, connect with the deities, bring about uh, the rise of the giants, and, and many other uh, type practices that God strictly forbade. The thing when we read the scripture and we see God say, don't do what the other nations are doing. Don't, don't divine. Don't uh, do, involve yourself in witchcraft and necromancy and, and these types of things. It's not because it didn't work. It's because it actually did work. When they solicited the enemy kingdom, they solicited the spiritual forces from the other side, there was interaction and connection which bred the corruption of the world. And again, uh, here, they, the story goes that when the watchers or the fallen angels sinned, they landed on Mount Hermon, they began to corrupt mankind, and many believe that these beings were able to begin to arise again after the flood because of such practices and structures as these, to summon the spirits of the dead, to create a bridge from the spiritual realm to the physical realm. And this is why I believe God has this stop in Bashan as the last stop from Israel before they go into the promised land. Because God is testing Israel. 
on who they are going to fear the most. Are they going to fear and respect the gods of this world and follow the way of the rest of the nations, or are they going to revere and fear the one true God who created the world? And the question before them now is, who are we going to choose? Are you going to give up your pagan roots? Are you going to give up the things that you've been immersed in that I've been trying to draw you out of? Or are you going to follow the way of the other nations and worship other gods that lead to corruption? Will you defy the nations by aligning with God, or will you defy God and break your covenant? So they face off against Og of Bashan. They defeat him in battle, and it sets them up to head toward the door of the promised land and begin their campaign. But before they get there, even though they've beaten the last giant king, before they get there, they have to travel back south into Moab and camp east of the Jordan River across from Jericho, which will be the first city in the conquest of Canaan. As they prepare to enter the promised land, the king of Moab, he sends for a wicked prophet named Balaam, or Balaam. And Balaam, he was uh, very known, he was a known prophet back in the day. Balak, Balak was not having any part of Israel hanging out in his territory. He heard about Sihon, he heard about King Og, and he's like, I can't, I can't have them here, but I don't think we're strong enough to defeat them on our own because of look what they just did. So he hires Balaam, this prophet, to come and curse the people of Israel. And what's interesting is in the 1960s, they discovered something from Balaam. It's one of the, the most prolific discoveries in uh, Christian or biblical archaeology. Go ahead and throw that picture up there, uh, Reese. Should the next picture. So this was an inscription that was found in Israel. It doesn't look super significant here, but it was written on plaster. Balaam's prophecies, these are prophecies that were found that are outside the Bible, but are the first prophecies to be discovered of a prophet from this area. He was the first prophet to be dug up, not digging up his bones or his tomb, but something actually from his literature. And this, um, this discovery actually confirmed his identity and his existence in Scripture. It's been it's a, an incredible discovery. But in Balaam, he was this prophet. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan. He was from uh, the land of Peor. And he was not a one-God prophet. He was a corrupt prophet. He was a prophet for hire. And King Balak hires him to curse the people of Israel. And as the story goes, they, you know, King Balak sends some messengers, says, we, we want you to curse Israel so that we can defeat them in battle. The king is going to pay you a bunch of money. Will you come and meet with the king? And Balaam says, well, let me go ask God if that's okay. And God says no, and Balaam says, no, I can't go. And so the king is upset, and he sends for Balaam again. He says, I really want you to come and curse these people. Will you come? And Balaam finally decides, uh, okay, let me go ask God again. And God said, you know, says, you can go, but not to curse the people. And on the way to meet King Balak, as Balaam is on his donkey riding, the donkey veers three different times. And Balaam thinks, what is wrong with this donkey? I've had this donkey my whole life. He's never been disobeyed, and he's running me off the road. He's running me into stuff. And every time he veers, Balaam gets off and beats his donkey, just like gets his aggression out. And on the third time, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey begins to talk to Balaam. And what I find so hilarious is that Balaam doesn't like skip a beat. He starts talking to the donkey. 
So I don't know if he's just like really been hitting the peace pipe too much to contact the spiritual world and is just used to hallucinations, but he's like talking to this donkey like this is a normal thing. And, uh, and of course, I felt bad for the donkey. But the moment God opens the mouth of the donkey, God also opens the eyes of Balaam. And Balaam can see the angel of the Lord in the way. And in Numbers 22, 32, the angel speaks to Balaam, and he says, Why did you beat your donkey those three times? The angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I've come to block your way because you're stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me shield away and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against my going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went on with Balak's officials, and when King Balak heard that Balaam was on the way, he went out to meet him at a Moabite town on the Arnon River on the farthest border of his land. Down in verse 41, it says, In the morning Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. From there he saw a fraction of the people. So Balaam gets to the land of Moab, meets the king, and the king, so excited, takes him up to this place called Bamoth Baal, uh, where they can overlook the, the valley and see part of the Hebrew people as they're waiting to move with God into the promised land. So now, um, over and again, as we look at the scripture, you'll often see whenever the, God was instructing them about not involving themselves in cultic practices, God would often say to tear down the high places. To tear down the, the high places where the idolatry was. It was often believed that the gods would visit people on mountaintops or that would visit them on high places. And so this place, Bamoth Baal, is not just a location. It's actually a technical name for a cultic platform. A, a place where they would go and worship a specific deity named Baal of the Moabites. It was a ritualistic altar center where they would sacrifice and worship in this time period. Now, what's interesting about Baal is where Balak takes Balaam to this place. Baal in the Canaanite uh, peoples, amongst the Canaanite peoples, was a storm god, a fertility god to the Canaanites. He was known as the prince, the lord of the earth. This is what he was known in ancient times. He's the prince of the Lord of the earth, the storm god. The Greeks called him Zeus, the storm god. And in Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus refers to this altar of Zeus as a synagogue or a seat of Satan. So there is a connection to the worship of Baal in the honor and cult, cultic religions that actually worshiped the devil himself in the city of Pergamum, where the seat of Satan was. So when he's taking ba Balaam to this cult place, this center, this high place, he's taking him to a location where they worshipped and honored the devil. So picture this. Balak takes Balaam to this place where they made sacrifices to the devil, where they engaged in horrendous, uh, perverse activity to honor this deity, so they could offer sacrifices to convince God to turn around and curse his own people. Does that make any sense to you? But this is what they're doing. 
they offered sacrifices, seven altars, offered these sacrifices to get Yahweh's attention, Yahweh's permission, so that Yahweh would turn and curse his own people. Not a very good plan, I'd say. But this was the attempt. And they attempted three different times. Each time they attempt the curse, God shows up, tells Balaam what to say, but it's not a curse, it's a blessing. The first blessing, God essentially tells Balaam that, and Balaam communicates to the king, that God cannot curse who he has blessed. God cannot curse who he has blessed. The second blessing is similar to the first, affirming God's protection and favor over his people. God protects those he watches over and will fight for them against their enemies. In the third blessing, in verse 7, we begin to see some prophecy of messianic implication. And think about, God himself is speaking through this wicked king, right here, or this wicked prophet. He's not a good prophet. He's a bad prophet. We would call him a false prophet. Yet God is speaking through him. And in verse 7, he prophesies of a king of Israel that will come, that will be greater than Agag. Agag is a name for the kings of the Amorites, similar to that Pharaoh was to the kings of Egypt. So often the different kings in Egypt were called Pharaoh. The kings of the Amorites were called Agag. And so the king of Israel will be greater than the Amorite kings. There's also in 1 Samuel a story of King Saul of Israel actually killing King Agag in a battle. So it could prob um, be a fulfillment of that as well. But after the third blessing, King Balak of Moab is completely upset, as you would assume. Right? He spent all this money, did all these sacrifices, convincing Balaam to come. He's expecting a curse so he can go out and win this battle. But instead of cursing, he, his enemies are blessed instead. And so he's beside himself. He's upset. And then all of a sudden, Balaam enters into a trance, is taken over by the Lord, and begins to speak a fourth time, which was completely unsolicited. There were no sacrifices offered for this. And Balaam begins to prophesy and leads to some of the most prolific and most famous prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, that we have in the Old Testament. Coming from this wicked prophet who was sent to curse the people of Israel. In Numbers 24, verse 15, here's what it says. This is the message Balaam delivered. This is the message of Balaam, son of Baor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly. The message of the one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far distant in the future. And then what's he say? He says, a star will rise from Jacob. When did the star rise in Jacob? During Christmas, when the star rose in the sky and the wise men from the east came. Do you think the wise men knew of the prophecies of Balaam? Absolutely they did. They knew the prophecy. They knew the, the, the coming king, the coming one, would be heralded by a star that would rise in Jacob, which is why they came uh, at the time that they did looking for the Messiah. A star would rise that would signify this ruler that would come. Not only would a star rise, but a scepter would emerge from Israel, a kingdom, 
A scepter represents the authority of the kingdom, the authority of the king. So not only is the king coming, but this scepter, this kingdom is going to come, a kingdom unlike anything else. And so we have the star and we have the scepter. And then what's he say? He says, and it will crush the heads of Moab's people. What will crush the heads of Moab's people? The scepter, the kingdom that is to come is going to crush the heads of Moab's people. Now, there are many different uh, manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament. Many, uh, uh, most of them are in, in Hebrew, but the, the ancient, the, most, the oldest ones we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then also the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it records a little differently. It doesn't say the heads of Moab's people, but it says the princes of Moab. That the scepter, this, this kingdom unlike anything else, is going to crush the princes of Moab. And we understand in Scripture that the word prince is not just connected to earthly rulers, but also spiritual rulers. In Daniel chapter 10, whenever the spirit prince of Persia prevented the angel from coming to give Daniel a message, we can see this connection here as this prophecy from Balaam is now being unfolded that this ruler that will come and his kingdom that would come would completely undo the powers of not just the physical but also the spiritual forces of Moab, the land whose God was Baal. Baal of the Amorites. Baal of the Moabites. And not would it just come and destroy the heads of the Moab's people or the princes, the powers of Moab, but also that it would crack the skulls of the people of Sheth. This name Sheth has various meanings, but it comes from a word that means the sons of the tumult of war. So as it's coming to destroy the, the princes of Moab, it's also coming to crush the skulls of the people of Sheth or the sons of the tumult of war. Now, Derek Gilbert, in a podcast on Unraveling Revelation, he cites that scholars have discovered that this word sheth in the ancient languages refers to a people in the Transjordan area, also referred to by the Egyptians as the Shazu. Somebody say the Shazu. Go ahead and throw that picture up on the screen there, Reese. So this is an inscription of the Shazu people whenever uh, King Ramses came into contact with them. Do you notice how the two in the middle are kneeling down and the others are on the side standing up but the two in the middle kneeling position are as tall or taller than the ones on the side standing up you see the the inscriptions like these were often used as propaganda to kind of elevate the glory of the kingdom and so they're here gloating over the fact that they've conquered these two spies from the Shazu kingdom but it's interesting that they are larger taller and stronger than the Egyptians and their size is quite unique and so what's interesting about the Shazu people is that uh, even earlier that prior to Abraham a man named Omar Anus an Estonian scholar discovered that the Shazu were also known as an Amorite tribe called by another name the Sutians and the Sutians, traced in, in history, in older times, was, went by the name of the Tadanu. And the word Tadanu is where the Greeks got the word Titan, which refers to the gods of old. So here we have, in one little prophecy, from a wicked prophet, 
trying to curse the people of God. We have all the mythologies of the world coming together, colliding in this prophecy as the star and his scepter, the king who would come and his kingdom would bring an end to the rule and power of the ancient gods, the sons of the Talmuds of war, the ones who would bring destruction on the earth. In verse 18, book of Numbers, it says, Edom will be taken over, and Seir, its enemy, will be conquered, all the while Israel, God's people, march on in triumph. God's people will march on in triumph. Doesn't that sound a little bit of what Jesus said in Matthew 16? He says, on this rock will I build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You remember that? When Jesus said that very pinnacle? Did you know Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi? And when he asked them that question, when he asked, who do, who do the people say that I am? And it's like, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And then Peter comes out and says, but I say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says, God has revealed this to you. You're Peter, but upon this rock will I build my church. Caesarea Philippi was a city at the base of Mount Hermon in the Bashan. I am the king who is to come. And the scepter is going to go out. And it's going to destroy all the powers of darkness. The gates of the underworld, the gates of hell will not prevail against God's people. Verse 19 says, The ruler will rise in Jacob. He'll rise in Israel. He'll destroy the survivors of Ir. That word Ir can mean cities or places watched over, but in the Aramaic, it's tied and synonymous with the word the watchers, which is for the fallen ones who sinned in Genesis 6. They gave rise and birth to the giants. This prophesied ruler here, this prophecy from this wicked prophet meant to curse Israel is proclaiming the destruction of the ones whom he served and the ones Moab served. Do you see how the three major rebellions, we know the rebellion in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when man sins against God and turns against God. We recognize how when sin entered into the world, that was a big deal. And then you had the Genesis 6 rebellion where the angels kept not their first estate, came down and began to corrupt mankind. We understand now how that's a big deal, how it's all tied to what Jesus was coming to ultimately do. But there is a third rebellion we don't often think about. It was the rebellion in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel when God separates the people into tribes into languages. And you may think, well, what does that have to do with this story? What is this, how does this tie together? You realize after the flood of Noah, God sent the flood to start over, to start Eden all over again. And he told man to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. But instead of scattering to fill the earth, they came together and formed cities, and they began to build that tower in Babel. They began to build a ziggurat, and ziggurats were... Uh, attached to temple structures for worship. So in essence, what they were doing is they were saying, no, God, we're not going to do what you want. 
We're going to go back to the old ways. We're going to call down the powers of heaven, and we're going to make a name great for ourselves. So it's another rebellion, and God comes down to see it and says, no, we can't be having this. And so he separated the languages, confused the languages. But in Deuteronomy 32.8, we see something deeper of what actually happened in Genesis chapter 11. In Deuteronomy 32.8, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's at Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to what? The number of the sons of God. So he divided the people, and he did so according to the number of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? They are the angelic realm, the ones that he created um, to assist him in his divine work in the world. In Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and powers in the unseen world, these are the sons of God that we are reading here in Deuteronomy 32.8. What God did at Babel, he said, fine, you don't want me as your God. You want your own gods. I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to separate you into nations. You'll have your own language. You'll have your own pantheon of gods. They will rule over you, and I will choose one out of nothing for myself. And out of Babel, as these nations and, and countries and peoples are forming, he calls a man named Abraham to take him to a place he would show him, to a place that one day would be called the Promised Land. And he begins the process of redemption. And God makes a promise to Abraham, doesn't he? He says, and out of your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So though God was divorcing the nation at that time, he's prophesying of a time where the nations would be gathered again back to him. These nations were turned over to the rulers and powers of this world, fixed boundaries of those that were set up as spiritual rulers to watch over those nations. Something I want to show you in Psalm 82, it's something that we can, again, easily gloss through and not really think through. But I want to show you something that is very specific because often, you know, we are looking at the world and we look at different nations and cultures and we think they have all these gods and they just made all this stuff up. No, they didn't. In Psalm 82, this is what it says about our God. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The word God here is the word Elohim. Elohim simply means divine ones or divine rulers and beings. God is Elohim. So if God is Elohim, it says in the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. The, the what? The gods. So God is an Elohim, but so are these other beings. They are gods. But these gods are not Yahweh God. God is Elohim, but these little g gods, Elohim, are not God. God is above all gods. So God takes his place in the midst of this council, this divine council, where he holds judgment. 
in verse 2, it says, How long, this is God speaking to the council. It says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And I said, you are gods. Somebody say, you are gods. I said, you are gods. That's Elohim. Sons of the Most High. El Elyon, the Most High God. You are sons of God. You gods. All of you. But then he says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. When God created the heavens and the earth, he also created the hosts, the heavenly hosts. He created the angelic beings, these divine but yet lesser beings. He refers to himself as gods. To humanity, they would be like gods, just as you would think of the mythologies of Zeus, Hercules, Thor, the gods of Egypt, and others. This is where the gods of this world come from from God's divine created plan. In the beginning, when God says, let us make man in our image, as he's creating humankind, he says, let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to? He's talking to the gods. He's talking to the divine council. But yet it's God himself who carves us from the ground and breathes into us the breath of life. Just as God partners with us for his glory to be seen on the earth, he also partners with his heavenly hosts for his glory to be seen in the spiritual realm. For his glory to be filled in the heavenly places. But as he states here in this passage in Psalm 82, part of the gods fell. Rather than directing worship to Yahweh, they received worship in themselves. Rather than leading and governing the world in holiness, they sowed corruption. They made themselves masters over mankind, enslaving mankind instead of serving mankind. And so God pronounced judgment that though these be gods, one day they shall die like ordinary men. The God has appointed a day for the overturning of the power of these spiritual beings, the gods of this world. And now every nation and being and people group has its own set of gods that are lord over their territory. And they fight amongst themselves, leading and coming against one another. And many countries, nationalities, and peoples, they have the same gods. They just call them by different names because of the different languages. But they, these are where the ancient stories come from. This is why we see the same story told all over the world. And this is, in this prophecy of Balaam, this is what we're being drawn into. We're being told the story behind the story about what God is doing right now with the nation of Israel as they've defeated Og and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And as we're reading the great romance, as he's setting up now this moment where he's getting ready to begin enacting his plan of redemption and salvation through Israel, that beginning from the rebellion in Genesis 11 all the way now to the reclaiming of the promised land and the peoples of the world. So he gave the territories of the world over to these gods to rule. But he claimed a small piece of land for himself for this insignificant people. And out of his land would come a king and a kingdom that would bring an end to the corruption of the gods of this earth. And this is what God was doing while Israel was wandering in the desert, preparing them for this very moment. He was setting the stage. And this stage sets for 
many places and things of what Jesus did in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Paul, as he's writing to the church of Ephesus, he begins to unpack a mystery that was hidden before time. And I want you to, to see, because this adds the significance of the hour in which we live. Why we are the church, the body of Christ, even now. What we're purposed to do. Paul says, as you've read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his Spirit, he has revealed it to his holy angels and prophets. And this is God's plan. This was God's plan. Right? We're getting ready to see the, the brilliance of God, right? Both Gentiles and Jews, Gentiles or anyone, any nationality that's not a Jew, and then God's chosen people, both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news, the gospel, share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and enjoy the promises of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. And by God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. And I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Here's the plan. Verse 10. God's purpose in all of this was to use the what? The church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the what? The unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan was to show beyond a shadow of a doubt to every God of this earth who is the one true and only God and to do it through us. This was the eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord, the star that would rise with a scepter that could not be conquered. This is why Jesus' message when he's preaching is all about the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom because we're proclaiming a new and greater kingdom. Because out of Jacob would emerge a scepter a kingdom that would bring an end to the rule of the gods of the earth. This was God's plan from the beginning, to use the church, the joining of Jews and Gentiles together. And isn't it not interesting that in Babel, he separated people into languages and into many nations and tribes. But on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, all the nations came together and were brought together through language in the Holy Spirit to bring back the Jew and the Gentile into one people, under one Lord, one faith, one baptism by his Holy Spirit. We'd be given the power to become the sons of God. Think about this. There's only one God. Beside him, there is no other. And through the church, those who believe, we'd be given the power, the right to become the sons of God. We would rise up in the last day seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. We're seated with him on his throne in the divine council to judge the earth with Christ. So here are these gods. They fell. They lost their place. They'll be judged and overturned. Us who fell and turned to Christ are now elevated to the council to seat 
and be seated with Christ and reign with Jesus Christ. It's a complete overturning. This is the story of what's happening. The former sons of God are overthrown to die like normal human beings, and we who die like normal human beings have been raised to live forevermore like the sons of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, Know the wisdom we speak of this mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would have not crucified the Lord. If the demonic powers, the principalities and rulers of the earth knew what would happen when Jesus went to the cross, they wouldn't have let him go. They would have stopped him. That's why God kept it secret. But they fell into God's plan because there's no one like our God. And now this is the significance of this statement when Jesus comes to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, and he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He has disarmed the enemy, and he's risen with the keys of the kingdom, and it's all his authority. When Jesus died, he broke the power of the devil, the kingdom of darkness that it had instituted, and now brought forth the kingdom of light. He has risen with all authority. The scepter has now began to rule over the earth. This is why he said, go into all the world, from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses, and you're going to start here in Israel, and you're going to cover the earth, because we're reclaiming the kingdom of God. We're reclaiming what is rightfully his. The lands that were separated, the people that were lost at Babel are being regathered to the Great Commission and the preaching of the gospel. We've been called to uh, free those that have been enslaved by the evil one, to grant them their freedom if they would choose to trust in the King of Kings. He sent us with the power of the Spirit to confirm the gospel and to open blind eyes, set captives free, and release the prisoners. You see, what God did physically with Israel in the conquest when he took them into the promised land to set up the physical kingdom in Israel, overturning the physical wickedness of the earth against the giants. God is doing it same thing right now with the church of Jesus Christ as he's sending us out into the world with the message of the gospel. He's doing the same thing. He cleansed the land physically with Israel in the kingdom. He's sending us to cleanse the land spiritually. And this is the beginning of the redemption story we're reading here in the book of Numbers. As Israel is about to enter into the promised land. And in this moment, they have to decide, God, am I going to serve Yahweh or other gods? Go with the Lord or turn away from the Lord. And God gave them this great victory over Og of Bashan, I believe, to show them there is no God like our God. He is undefeatable, and with God, all things are possible. And in this moment, being so frustrated at this point, King Balak of Moab just decides to go on his way, it seems. And in the next chapter, Balak or Balaam seems to return home. But something happens in chapter 24 of the book of Numbers, or, or um, as you continue to read. Some of the women of the Moabite country come into the camp, and they um, begin to seduce the men of Israel. They convince them to uh, worship with them to honor Baal, to offer sacrifices, commit perversion, 
and all of a sudden, another curse, just as they've been battling through the desert, another curse is unleashed in the nation of Israel, and people begin to die. One, uh, one man was so bold as to take a Moabite woman into his tent right in front of Moses and Eleazar to commit uh, acts of lewdness with her. And Phinehas, Aaron's grandson, so filled with zeal from the Lord, says, I'm not having anything to do with that. He takes a spear and kills them both in the tent, and instantly the curse ceases. And God honors Phinehas because of his zeal for the Lord. But not before 24,000 Israelites died in that curse. They just beat the last of the giant kings. God just, through Balaam, said, I will not curse that which I have blessed. Now, how come Balaam couldn't curse the people, but they ended up cursed? Well, we learn in Numbers 31 the very reason why. Numbers 31, after they, God sends them to retaliate against Moab, they just, they kill the king of Moab, they kill Balaam, the prophet, they win another victory. In Numbers 31 15, as they're collecting the spoils, some of the men decide uh, to take the women along with them as their slaves. And Moses is rather upset about this. In verse 15, he says, Why have you let the women live, he demanded. These are the ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. They are the ones who caused the plague to strike the Lord's people. The ones who came in and seduced Israel, that opened the curse over the people, they were the ones that they brought along with them. And he's saying, what are you doing? This was what brought this problem on us to begin with. It looked like Balaam just went home, but what did, what did Balaam actually do? He knew he couldn't get God to curse his own people, while they were under God's favor, they could not be cursed. So what did Balaam do? He had the people of God curse themselves. He had the women of Moab seduce the men into idolatry. And it caused it to curse themselves by choosing to turn away from the ways of the Lord and engage in the worshiping of false gods, especially in the worship of Baal, the sworn enemy of God, the leader of the fallen angelic realm. And beloved, in James chapter 4, verse 4, James is writing to the church. And here's what James says. He says, you adulterers. That's a great way to start a letter, isn't it? You adulterers. Yeah, it's kind of harsh, James. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself. Somebody say make yourself. You make yourself an enemy of God. See, physical adultery is connected to spiritual adultery in Scripture. Why? When you step out of your marriage covenant and you become an adulterer at heart, you forsake the blessings of the covenant you once enjoyed because you're outside of the covenant. When you forsake the blessing of the covenant you once enjoyed, you are outside the covenant. When you turn from the ways of the Lord, to engage in the ways of the world, you end up placing yourself outside his blessing and protection. Every time Israel would turn back to the world, to the former ways, they ended up on the wrong side of the battle and they suffered for it. Why? Because God has never lost a battle. And beloved, this is why Jesus had to come. 
not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Because our ability to be blessed under the law was contingent on our ability to obey the law. And this sin curse we wrestle with every day is constantly pulling our hearts away in one way or another. In Galatians 3, 12 through 14, it says this way of faith. Somebody say the way of faith. Praise God for the way of faith. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took on himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it's written in the scriptures, curse is everyone who's hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit by faith. Yes. With the Holy Spirit... We're given every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the place in which we stay. Our eternal salvation is not dependent on our goodness, but on His. It's His grace, not our works. When we receive the Spirit, we're sealed by the King's seal, adopted into His royal family, made into the sons of God. And who God has blessed, no one can curse. And the enemy has no authority over us. 1 John 5.18 says we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. Who God has blessed, the evil one cannot curse. This is our supernatural place of protection that every believer enjoys. By nature of who they are in Jesus Christ. We are the blessed. We are the sons and daughters of God. We are his sheep who know his voice. We can't be plucked out of the Father's hand. We are a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, holy unto the Lord. We live under the scepter and the star that rose out of Jacob, who destroyed the powers of the enemy and has reclaimed all authority in heaven and on earth. But even with supernatural protection from the Lord, we also have a measure of his authority. Which is why the proverb says to guard your heart above all else because it determines the course of your life. What was the easiest way to get a curse into the camp? It was idolatry. It was leading Israel to put other things before the Lord. To give a place of worship to other things. And an idolatrous life is a life of greed, covetousness, selfishness, pride, filled with the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And beloved, in our world today, our world is trying to do the very same thing. In the body of Christ, with every advertisement, entertain, entertainment, media push, something is vying for that place of prominence in our life. And what isn't pulling us toward Christ is per pulling us towards corruption. And it doesn't take us all over at once, but in small enticements, little compromises, it lures our hearts away. And this is a problem even in the church today. In 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21, Paul, as he's writing to this church, he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I find. You won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Yes, I'm afraid that when I come again, God will humble me in your presence, and I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not repented of your impurity, sexual immorality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. 
in the world today, it is constantly pulling our hearts away, even in the body of Christ. And in the last days, uh, in the last days church, Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 2 to the church, he says, and even some are following the ways of Balaam. That even in our day today, they're following seducing teachings like Balaam taught the people of Israel. To, there are things that are trying to come against the body of Christ, the church, through our culture to lead us away from holiness, righteousness, trust in the word, and to follow the ways of the world. In the weakness of the church of Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with the weakness of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God at work at those who believe. The weakness of the church today, our inability for uh, us to see what we want to see, what we see proclaimed and the promises fulfilled, it's not in the weakness of the gospel or the inability for God to do what he said. It has everything to do with the curses we allow in the camp. That's what it has to do with. Because of the sin we disregard in our own hearts. We say, God, we want revival. God, send revival. God, we want to be a part of a move. God, we want to be filled with your spirit. God, we wanted this. We want that. We want to be a part of this awesome thing. But what we need first is renewal, not revival. We need a repentance in the body of Christ. To repent of the things we put before Christ and put it back as preeminence in our life. Casting down our idols and turning away from leading our hearts away from God. Beloved, the enemy may be defeated, but they still haven't given up the fight. The war is not over until Jesus is sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. The enemy may be powerless over our salvation, but he's still at war in the world. You see... Even now, Satan is before the throne of God, the scripture says, accusing us day and night. Just as Balaam was petitioning God to curse his people, Satan, Baal, is before the throne petitioning God to curse his people. Day and night. And he's not cast out until the tribulation period. He's trying to convince God to judge and to converse, curse his own people. But praise be to God that so Jesus is before the throne interceding on our behalf defending us against the accusations of the evil one. See, just as God sent the angel of the Lord to stand up for God's people against Balaam, God rose Jesus from the dead to stand up against the devil for us in heaven. And if Jesus is still fighting for us up there, why should we give up fighting for him down here? Why? You see, it's not enough just to win a battle. You must also hold the line. Stand your ground press into the presence of the Lord. You see, if Israel was taking a stance of protection, standing the ground, holding the line, they may not have been lured away by the women of Moab. Maybe they should have been on the defense against the lures of the enemy. But beloved, our personal lives, our struggles, so much of the stuff that we get caught up in day in and day out, we would see more blessing than cursing if rather than giving an audience to the tempter, giving in to our sinful nature, making excuses for our behavior. We just stood our ground on the word of God in the power of Jesus' name, and we said, not today, Satan. Not today, Satan. This world has nothing for me. I'm living for a different king in a different kingdom, and his kingdom 
There will be no end. It's an everlasting kingdom. Beloved, what God has blessed cannot be cursed unless he who has been blessed invites that curse upon himself. And I'm so thankful that Jesus has made a way for every curse to be lifted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the story that you're showing us, God, how even in this moment where Israel is under attack and they've fallen yet again, God, you've made a way. In every failure, there is a promise of what Jesus can do. And I'm so thankful, God, that it's only you that can take the ground of our greatest failure and turn it into the ground of our greatest victory. And I pray, God, against every struggle this morning, every person who's coming here heavy burdened, every failed memory, every uh, just hard uh, memory that we look back and say, man, I wish I could have done that different. Or maybe every struggle that it's like, I can't, I, I just can't get this right in my life. It'll just keep falling in this moment, God. I know that you have prepared a day of deliverance and salvation in each and every circumstance. And God, I know it comes by submitting ourselves to you, by casting down our idols, turning away from what led our hearts astray, and coming humbly before you and saying, God, I give you my life. God, I serve you. God, I repent of my sin. Please save me. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. God, I turn away so I can live anew for you. And I know, God, that in the name of Jesus, every chain can break because you broke the power of the enemy. You disarmed him. He has no legal right. He has no uh, legal right to come against the people of God. And so, Lord, I just proclaim that victory today. I thank you, Lord. I pray for those that just are, are heavy burdened today, God. I pray that your grace and peace would just fill and flood their lives. I pray for those who have been sick. God, I pray that your healing power would come. God, you've taken, taken every curse upon yourself by the blood of Christ and your broken body. And it's by your stripes we can be healed. God, every promise we have has come because of what you accomplished on the cross. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. God, continue to draw us into your word. Draw us deep into the story. Help us see the significance of the hour that right now we're alive today to proclaim the gospel so that we can continue to advance the kingdom. And as we advance the kingdom, we get closer to the arrival of the king. God, we love you and we praise you. We give you all the glory to your name. In Jesus' name. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.